Bible and open to the Old Testament book of Daniel. Old Testament book of Daniel. Um, it's right after the big book, Ezekiel. And uh, this morning, we're, if you hadn't been here, we're studying through this book. And so we've already looked at the first two chapters of Daniel. And today we're coming to the third chapter. We've taken a, a chapter a week, which makes a lot of sense. I know it feels like it's moving through it fast. It makes a lot of sense. Um, at least in the first half of the book, because uh, they're sort of each self-contained units, and so like they each tell their own story, and it wouldn't make much sense to divide chapter 3 up into parts, because it, it tells one story. So we're going to look at a whole chapter. If you haven't been here, just to get a little background of Daniel, what you're reading in Daniel uh, is roughly 600 years before Christ, um, and Daniel and his three friends that uh, have come down to us known as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Uh, Their Hebrew names, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, um, were Jewish boys uh, growing up in in Judah. The Babylonians were the the big guys on the block, and they had overtaken Israel. Judah as a country and and taken the people who lived in Judah and scattered them throughout their empire and they had taken Daniel and those other three uh, Nebuchadnezzar the king of Babylon had taken those four boys into his palace to work in his palace um, and we've already seen uh, uh, some some crazy things in chapters one and two I won't, we don't have time to recap all that we've seen in those chapters um, but today in chapter three we come to Probably the most well-known story in the book of Daniel, save maybe Daniel in the lion's den. That's probably the most famous, but next to that one is, is what we have in, in Daniel chapter 3, um, where um, Daniel's three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, were thrown into a, a blazing fire, a fiery furnace, and, and delivered powerfully out of that uh, by the hand of God un, un, unharmed. And so I'm sort of, because of that, calling this uh, through the fire. That's not going anywhere. Um, So you want to click through the screens for me, Anna? Hey, there we go, there we go. I'm working now. Um, All right, so through the fire. And man, we're going to read it in just a second. There's a ton to learn in this chapter. It's one of my favorite chapters in Daniel. Uh, Not only uh, just what happens... Well, I just thought there's all sorts of stuff in it. So what I'd like for us to do, uh, if you found Daniel 3, let's just read it together, uh, and then we'll walk back through it, sort of diving more closely into the specifics. So Daniel chapter 3, we're going to read the whole chapter, uh, beginning in verse 1. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold, whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth 6 cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura, in the province of Babylon. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all of the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And the herald proclaimed aloud, 
You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are all to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, to fall down and worship the image that I've made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is, who is the God who will deliver you out of my hand? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered the king and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. That Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury and the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the, fur the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated. And he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and, and to cast them into the burning fiery furnace. Then these men who were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their other garments, and they were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace. Because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning, fiery furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king. He answered, But I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire, and they're not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Then Nebuchadnezzar came 
near to the door of the burning fiery furnace and declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come out here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire. And the satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not, had not any power over the bodies of those men. The hair of their heads was not singed. Their cloaks were not harmed. And no smell of fire had come upon them. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants, who trusted in him and set, the, set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Therefore I make a decree, any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb, and their houses laid in ruins, for there is no other god who is able to rescue in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. All right, let's pray. God, this is your holy, inspired, inerrant, authoritative, sufficient, necessary, and clear word. And um, we're grateful to be able to read it and study it. Um, these are the words of life. And I pray that you would uh, give us eyes to see this for what it is and give us minds to understand what we're to understand out, out of this today give us hearts to embrace and love the truth that we see in it give us the will and the fortitude to live out what we have uh, to live out here give us all ears to hear give me the help that i need to teach i pray in jesus name amen all right as we as we go back through this um chapter and see what we have to learn. I think there's, there's uh, four important elements of this story that I want to kind of highlight. First of all, we're going to think about the defiance of King Nebuchadnezzar. We sort of see that uh, in the first few verses. The defiance of King Nebuchadnezzar, and that's sort of at the root of this whole story. Uh, then we'll consider the determination of Daniel's three friends when clearly a difficult choice was put in front of them. Then we're going to see the deliverance that God provided for Daniel's friends, even in the midst of that fire. And then finally, the decision that we have to make from stories like this. And uh, I think they're each um, clearly presented in this story. There's the verse references for you on that last one for each of those. Um, they're clearly seen here. And each, each sort of has uh, strong things for us to weigh and, and to consider. So let's begin at the beginning and walk back through this story and think about the defiance of Nebuchadnezzar that sort of starts this whole thing. So when you start reading this chapter, the first, the first uh, words you read in verse 1 is that King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold. Now, if you were just popping into the book of, Nebuch uh, of Nebuchadnezzar, the book of Daniel right now, like you're just saying, I think I'm going to read my Bible today, and I'm going to, wherever it opens, it's going to open, and I'm just going to start reading. If, the, if you just did it that way, um, this, the fact that he made an image of gold may not seem very significant to you at all. It's just another thing. But if, if you've been reading Daniel from the beginning, and if you've, if you've reading chapter 3 after having read chapter 2, there's a little more significance to the fact that it begins this way. Why? Because you remember in chapter 2, the big deal, the whole, the, 
chapter 2 sort of revolved around this dream that Nebuchadnezzar had, a dream that disturbed him, a dream that scared him. Um, and we talked about how incredibly insecure Nebuchadnezzar was, even as much power as he had, that a dream could disturb him in this way. But it disturbed him so, and he, he wanted to get to the bottom of what this dream meant. And, and to know that he was getting the right answer, he called all the wise men in his kingdom to him, and he says, I've been disturbed by a dream. I want to know what it meant, but so I know that you know what you're talking about, I want you to do two things. I want you to first tell me what the dream was. I'm not going to tell you what my dream was and then ask you to interpret it for me so that I know what you're talking about. You tell me what my dream was first, and then you tell me what it meant. And I don't, I'll know you know what you're talking about. And, of course, all the wise men in the kingdom were like, nobody can do that. We can't do that. Tell us the dream, we'll tell you what it meant, but we can't tell you what the dream was. Come on. Nobody can do that. Um, and so Daniel comes along, long story short, God reveals to Daniel what the dream was and what it meant. So what was the dream? The dream was that, that, that Nebuchadnezzar dreamed and had a vision of this huge figure standing in front of him. And the, 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 the figure was made out of different materials, different metals from top to bottom. And so, um, and, and, it, and, and it represented different things. So the head was made out of gold, the shoulders and the arms were made out of, out of silver. The, the chest and the middle was made out of bronze. And the legs and the feet were made out of, 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 of iron and clay. And also, incidentally, in that dream, the other part was not just that figure made out of different things, but the, the rest of the dream was that there was this other stone that had not been cut out by human hands that came and basically destroyed that figure, and it kept growing and growing and growing as a mountain until it covered the whole earth. Um, and it, so what did it mean? That's the other part of what Daniel came to say. Uh, Daniel says, well, God gave you that dream, and, and here's, here's what it means. He says this, this figure made out of different materials and metals represents different kingdoms of the world. Um, and uh, by the way, Nebuchadnezzar, you're the head of gold. You and your kingdom stand atop this figure. You are the head of gold. And the other sections underneath it, made out of the different materials, are other great kingdoms that will come after yours. Um, and a after your kingdom declines and falls. And so you can, we, last week we sort of saw how uh, they're pretty clearly identified. If you know history, um, the, 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 the kingdom, the mighty empire before the Babylonians were the Assyrians, when the Babylonians overtook them. Well, after the Babylonians, you can see the march of history. After the Babylonians, it was the Persian kingdom under King Cyrus, and even Cyrus makes an appearance in Daniel. And then, then after the Persians, the, the, the big guy on the block was the Greek empire under Alexander the Great, and then after he's gone, it was the Roman empire. You see these come and go, and then... The, the main point of the dream was that the stone that came in, that was not cut out by any human hand, it came and crushed all of these kingdoms. And these kingdoms being representative of all the kingdoms of the world that might come and go and come in power and, and fall in power. This stone that came in, not cut out by any human hand, that crushed all of these is the kingdom of God. And it was gonna, it, it, it's unlike these others, this kingdom is going to have no end. And it's going to grow and grow and grow until it fills the whole world. And the message was simple to Nebuchadnezzar. I mean, he was given that dream. And the message to him was simple. It's basically, you are powerful in earthly terms. But here's the truth. Uh, uh, 
your kingdom, as mighty as it seems, is subservient to the kingdom of God. And you should bow your knee to the God of heaven. That's obviously not the message that Nebuchadnezzar wanted to hear. Though he did reward Daniel for for that, that's not the part of the message that he even fixated on. It it seems like from chapter 3, just reading between the lines, it seems like the only thing that he fixated on were uh, what Daniel said in chapter 2, verses 38 and 39 when he told Nebuchadnezzar, uh, you're the head of gold. I don't know what's going on. We're, we're just going to not have slides this morning, I think. I'm tired of messing with it. Um, he says in chapter 2, verses 38 and 39, you are the head of gold. But another kingdom inferior to you shall arise after you. So he, he didn't want to admit two things. He didn't want to admit... Uh, that A, God ruled over him, and he certainly didn't want to admit that his kingdom would ever falter and fall, or that any other kingdom would would come after his. And so when you come to chapter 3, what do you find Nebuchadnezzar doing? He's building his own figure. He's building his own statue. And when, when Nebuchadnezzar builds a statue, not only is the head made out of gold, as in the dream that God gave him, but Nebuchadnezzar made the whole thing out of gold. He made the whole thing gold. And not only is the whole thing made out of gold, as if to defy what God had said, what Daniel said that God had told him, that another kingdom would come after him, but he made this statue 90 feet tall and 9 feet wide. I'm not good at um, picturing in my mind how tall 90 feet is. I googled it. I'm like, what in Auburn is 90 feet tall? You know, uh, oddly enough, the business building, louder business building, is 90 feet tall. So if you, if you think looking up at the business building, how tall the business building is, that's like how tall this statue was of gold that that Nebuchadnezzar made. On the heels of that, having that dream, you're the head of gold, but other kingdoms are going to come after you, and they're made out of these other metals. And he's like, nah. The whole thing is me. I'm it. You know. I mean, he, clearly he was trying to uh, send a, a, a message, and and there's even more reason to think that he was doing that because uh, as you keep reading in the chapter, you see other reasons to believe that that's the case. Also, in verse one, it says uh, that he built this thing. I'm doing it now. I think on the plain of Dura, in verse one in the province of Babylon. On the plain of Dura, in the province of Babylon. We also, you know, what, what, what's the point of that? We learned back in chapter 1 that this same area was called the land of Shinar. He built this statue on the plain of Dura in Babylon, in the land of Shinar. Well, that's, that's chapter 1, verse 2, by the way. <laughs> if you're familiar with your Old Testament, to any degree you might remember something else quite infamous that was built in the land of Shinar Um, in Genesis 11 we learn that the tower of Babel from which Babylon got his name was built according to Genesis 11 2 in the land of Shinar and why did they build that tower 
in Bible, in the land of Shinar. Verse 4 of Genesis 11 says, They said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves. They wanted to exalt themselves above everything else. They wanted to exalt uh, and worship themselves. They wanted to worship their ability. They wanted to say, we are and we are all that is. We are the highest. Uh, in, in, in reality, there's none above us. Let us make a name for ourselves and let's, let's uh, worship ourselves and our desires and our, our passions. Exalt themselves above God. And in that same place, so many centuries later, Nebuchadnezzar did the same thing. He put up a 90-foot tall golden statue of himself trying to exalt himself above all, including God. And as the story goes on, the truth of that becomes even clearer because what does Nebuchadnezzar command the people to do to the image he made? Worship it. Worship it. And he commanded it to be an awesome scene. Did you notice how repetitive chapter 3 was? Like how many times did I read the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music? Like, I read that over and over again. And just, he, what that's trying to communicate to you is he brought everything in that there was to be brought in to make this sound-wise, visually, the most majestic thing that they had probably ever seen. Now, when you read horn, bat, pipe, lyre, trigon, you're like, all right, whatever. It's this, but it's the kind of thing, it's like when you, when, you, uh, when you watch a movie when you're a kid and you're like, whoa. And then you, watch, you do watch it again when you're later and you're like, God, that was corny. You know what I'm saying? Like, how did I ever think that was cool? It, the, the point is, at the time, this was all that could be mustered. This was all that could be brought in. This is more than anybody that had ever experienced. And so when you're standing there and this 90-foot tall golden image is there before you, and then the loudest music, most majestic music your ears had ever heard. It's already visually awe-inspiring. It's, what's the word? Audit, auditorially? Audit, ear-wise? <laughs> the most uh, moving sounds you've ever heard. Worship it. And not only just the music, and the visually, but how many times did I read... The satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justice, the magistrates, and, all, uh, and the, all the officials of the province gathered together. Everybody was there. Everybody was there. The best music you'd ever heard in your life was there. The most awe-inspiring image your eyes had probably ever seen was there. You get, you get the big picture here. Nebuchadnezzar was commanding that, the, that, that people made in the image of God, were to worship an image that man had made. Commanding the image of God to worship it, the image of man. This is the highest defiance. Notice something else about what Nebuchadnezzar says when he gathers everyone for, for worship. Verse 4 says that he begins his address this way. O oh, peoples, nations, and languages. He felt like he had conquered the world. You know, oh, peoples, nations, and languages. He's, 
he's emphasizing the vastness of the people he had conquered. And he's like, I've got the world under my control. O peoples, nations, and languages. And he says in verse 7, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down in worship. And you wonder how many Jews fell right in line with this. We need to examine ourselves when we see this. I mean, we, we thought about that, I think, in week one. How many, like, we're not prone to be Daniels. We're not prone to be Hananiah, you know, Azariah, and Mishael. I'm, in my heart, prone to be just like the multitude of other Jews who were carried away and who fell right in line and became Babylonian like the rest of them. Like, how, how, I'm, I'm, I'll, I'll just go ahead and say it. I, sometimes I, I wonder how much of our worship is, is taken up in, in just emotion. The emotion of the music or the emotion of the atmosphere. Because this was an atmosphere. This was an atmosphere like they'd never seen. Visually, it was an atmosphere like they'd never been in. Musically, it was an atmosphere like they'd never been in. How many of them just raised their hands and bowed their heads? You know, in that moment. I, I, we're prone to be just like that. Nebuchadnezzar was trying to gain the worship of the world, all the peoples, all the nations, all the languages. Let me go ahead and tell you, there is actually only one who will actually receive that. Revelation 7, 9 says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, worshiping the Lord God for his salvation. But Nebuchadnezzar was trying to defy this to the fullest of his ability and was commanding what belongs only to God, worship, to be given to him. What, and what would happen what, what would happen when the, when the people were to bow? Well, most of them did bow. No doubt, even, probably even most of the Jews who knew better. But it's amazing at this point to see the... the, the, the um, forget about it. The um, amazing determination of these three men to do what they knew was right. So let's think about the determination. What it might, what it might have cost them. So apparently at the, as the time came for the people to bow to Nebuchadnezzar's um, image of gold, there were three there who didn't. Obviously, we've already read that. There were the, and there were Daniel's friends who have come down known to us as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, which was their Babylonian names, not their Hebrew names. And I love that it says in verse 8 that when they didn't bow down, it was, it was the Chaldeans who came forward and accused them to Nebuchadnezzar. It says very specifically, therefore at that time certain Chaldeans came forward. And maliciously accused the Jews. The reason I love this is, is because um, it, it, it apparently wasn't Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who were making a scene out of what they were doing. You know what I'm saying? Like they weren't trying to draw attention to themselves. They weren't, they weren't trying to stage any kind of protest. They weren't marching on capital. You know what I'm saying? They were just quietly trying to honor and obey God as, as best they knew how. 
doing what they knew was right. I was going to have a, a quote from Sinclair Ferguson up there on the screen for you, but it's not there. But here's what he says. The people of faith do not have a psychological need to make a big deal out of their acts of heroism. They do not always need to be drawing attention to the fact that they are different from others. They simply act according to the Lord's word and allow their actions to speak without unnecessary histrionics. You know, that's true. But there they were, accused before the king. And the king gives them an, an ultimatum. When the musicians play the music, I'll give you another chance to bow, to, to bow down. Anybody want to come up here and teach for me? This is not my day. I'll give you another chance to bow down when you hear the music. And if you bow down, fine. But if you don't, I will throw you alive into the fire. Right? And in, and in perfect uh, keeping with what we've already seen in previous chapters about Nebuchadnezzar, he arrogantly says in verse 15, if you look there, he says, uh, in verse 15, who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? I mean, he doesn't think there, will, there is one. Even though, God, this just shows you how, how sin binds and twists our heart and blinds us. I mean, he had just had a dream, literally, that he had, that he didn't reveal what it was, literally told back to him and told what it meant. Like, something pretty amazing that in that moment had awed him. He was like, oh, Daniel, you're awesome. Here's a bunch of gifts. He had already forgotten about that. And it comes to this, he's like, there's nobody who can deliver you out of my hand. There's no God who can do this. He thinks he's the highest one of all, and he certain, certainly wouldn't lift a finger to help him, so nobody's going to help you if I don't. He had forgotten one God in particular, but back to the ultimatum. It's like when you read this. Here's what it, when I read this, it's what it, in the Old Testament, it reminds me of a, of a New Testament example when you read the book of Acts, when Peter and John in Acts 5 were standing before the authorities, and they're given a command to obey what they in, in good conscience knew was not right. And they famously looked at the authorities in the Sanhedrin in Acts 5.29 and said, we must obey God rather than men. What we have here in Daniel 3 is like the Old Testament version of that story. They're given an ultimatum by Nebuchadnezzar, and they give their answer. It's an amazing answer. Verses 16, 17, and 18. I say, oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver, you, deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand. But that's not all. He says in verse 18, But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. The most... The most powerful words in, in that little speech to me are the three words, but if not. I mean, our God can deliver us out of this crazy hot fire. But if he doesn't, but if not, I'm still not going to do what you said. But if not. 
let's think about what that what's behind those words. The the first thing that strikes me about but if not is their absolute and complete confidence in the in the power of God. Like they say with unflinching certainty that God is, is able to deliver them and not just to deliver them from a difficult situation, but from something that would seem to be completely contrary to nature. Fire won't burn me up. It won't even not burn me up. It won't even hurt me. I won't even smell like fire when I come out. That is really acknowledging who God is. But the other thing when they say, but if not, the other thing that it's not just their confidence in the power of God, but their complete submission to His will. Whatever it might be. But if not, even if he doesn't. They knew that it was possible that God would not deliver them from the fire unharmed. Not because he wasn't able though, but because he must have had a better plan for them. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego really felt like they were in a no-lose situation. If God chose to save them, and he was, as he was completely able to do, that God would be completely vindicated before the eyes of Nebuchadnezzar. But if he chose not to, then they were get, still giving testimony that God was worthy of giving their very lives for him, rather than bow down to the idol that Nebuchadnezzar had made. And did you know, did you notice that actually both of those things came true? Because A, they did come out of their unharmed, but notice at the end of the chapter what Nebuchadnezzar says about them. They said, uh, he says in verse 28, Nebuchadnezzar answered after all this was over, he said, blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who, who trusted him. So God was vindicated. But then he says, and, let, and, and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own. Both of those things that they knew could have been true came true. How do you get? How do you get to the point of... As you read the Bible autobiographically, like, put yourself in that story. Like, you're Shadrach. You know what I'm saying? Like, Kevin, Meshach, and Abednego. Well, what, what gets me to the point of being able to, in that moment, say, no, nah, I'm not going to do it. I mean, you can play the music, but I'm not going to bow down. I mean, my God can deliver me out of that, but even if he doesn't, I'm not going to do it. It's not worth it. He's more worthy than you. What gets you to that point, in that moment, to be able to say something like that? Well, two things, I think. One is just a reality that God was with them in that moment. God was with them in that moment and gave them the strength and the boldness to say what they said. When you hear of stories, I get started way back in like Columbine and school shooter and put the gun in the girl's face, professed a believer and said, deny Christ or I'll shoot you. And she didn't deny Christ and she got shot. And you th everybody thinks... Would I do that? Would I do that? Would I do that? And sometimes people freak out and go, I don't know if I could do that. Well, there's, there's 
two things going on when you think like that. One, one thing is legitimate. One, yeah, you can't do that. You're rotten just like I am, and a coward just like I am. You know? But two, when you're sitting here thinking of, about what would I do in that situation that's not even a reality in my life right now, you're thinking about it absent from the grace that God would give you in that moment. So as you think about it right now, you think, I'm too weak to make that kind of decision. But you're his child. And if you get in that moment where you need that courage, God will give you that courage in that moment. He may not have given it to you yet, but he will. And that's what's going on here. Certainly one of the reasons they were able to be this bold is because God, just like he had given Daniel the, interpret, the dream and its interpretation, now he was giving them the boldness that they needed in this moment. But even beyond just the supernatural equipping grace of God in that moment, the other thing that brought them to this, this ability in this moment was all the other trials they'd already been through already. Like every one of those trials were... Um, building up in them, trial by trial, the, the necessary tools in that moment to be prepared. I, I, I love um, uh, yeah, one of my favorite verses, um, two favorite verses. Yeah, I'm going to go with one. 2 <laughs> Corinthians, I love 2 Corinthians 4, 16 and 17. Where Paul says, So we do not lose heart. Though our outer nature is wasting away, our inner nature is being renewed day by day. And he says in verse 17, For this slight momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. This, what, it, what is preparing them for this? This slight momentary affliction. The affliction is the very thing that is preparing them for that thing. You know what I'm saying? And, I, and, and you, you can, going back to Daniel, you can see all the things that they had already, already been through in the first two chapters. All the, with the... Um, sort of re-education they were having to fight, where they were bombarding them with the literature and the language of the Chaldeans and saying, you can only eat the food that, we, that we're going to give you. We're going to give you new names. I mean, just over and over again, they're having to fight, fight, fight. And all the while, God was preparing them for this moment. I mean, He's going to give them the grace that, he, that, that they need in that moment. But they're not coming to that moment totally naked. They're coming clothed in all the... The, the armor that they had built up in all the previous trials. Same is true in our lives. God is true with us. God's with us every moment we need Him most. And even now, you may not see it now, but He's preparing you for moments later. Every trial, every hardship is prepared. It's not pointless. It's not meaningless. It's with something else in view. God's going to use every trial. He promises us in Hebrews 4.16 to give us grace in our time of need. Because it's only in the very moment of the trial that it becomes clear exactly how will God, God will show us His faithfulness. But He will show His faithfulness. You simply have to trust Him. 
And the reason that's hard is because we like to think we're in control, just like Nebuchadnezzar. The longer you live, just take my word for it, the longer you live, the more you see God be faithful, and it's, it becomes more and more of an instinct to trust him. You know? Let's think about the deliverance that God provided for them. So Nebuchadnezzar was mad, <laughs> to say the least. It actually says uh, in verse 19, his facial expression changed. I guess it did. There was already a fire hot enough to kill somebody in the furnace. But it says in verse 19 that he heated it seven times more than it was usually heated. That's pretty hot. It was so hot that when it was time for them to be thrown in the fire, the guys who threw them in the fire died. Nebuchadnezzar was trying his best to outjudge God. But then the famous moment of God's faithfulness and deliverance happened. Nebuchadnezzar had to do a double take. He's pretty sure that he threw three guys into the fire. He asked somebody else just to make sure he was right about that, wasn't going crazy. And they said, yeah, it was three. That didn't help anything. He says in verse 25, but I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire, and they're not hurt. And the fourth, and the appearance of the of fourth is like a son of the gods. How about that? Books have been written. <laughs> Many books have been written as to who the fourth person was. Some people think it's an Old Testament appearance of Christ. It's what they call a uh, a Christophany. You know, Christ appearing in the Old Testament. Uh, they say that drawing on the description of his appearance being like one of the son, like a son of the gods. He, Nebuchadnezzar was polytheistic, so in our worldview, a son of God. But on the other hand, verse twenty-eight indicates that it might have been an angel that God had sent, and that's perfectly legitimate. You know, I don't think it detracts in any way if this was an angel and not a Christophany. Because I don't believe the identity of the fourth person is the main point here anyway. The main point is they went in bound and they came out unbound. And they were not writhing and flailing in the fire. They were walking around in the midst of the fire. And they weren't burned or hurt at all. They were completely unharmed. Verse 27 says the fire had not any power over the bodies of those men. The hair of their heads was not singed. Their cloaks were not harmed. And no smell of fire had come upon them. I grilled yesterday. I smelled like smoke. This was the deliverance that God gave to them. It was a literal fulfilling, a little over 100 years later, what, he had, what God had already said in Isaiah chapter 43, verses 1 and 2. Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. That's a literal fulfilling of that. God is not faithful in the same way every time, but he is faithful every time. And in exactly the right way every time. You see it in Scripture. You've, ex you've experienced it in your life, whether you realize it or not. Faithfulness is the very character of God. And God cannot act contrary to his own character. If he has been faithful before, he will be faithful again. 
That brings us finally to the decision that's presented at the end of the chapter. Chapter ends just like the last one did. Nebuchadnezzar is sort of uh, awed by the miracle he had just witnessed. And so he totally changes his course on one level. That's funny that the, the chapter began with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego being sentenced to death for worshiping their God. Now it ends with everybody else being sentenced to death if they don't worship their God. Or if they say something bad about their God. And do you remember what Nebuchadnezzar said back in verse 15? Who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Well, now he says in verse 29, there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. He figured out, well, there's one. There's not another one. This is the only one. God vindicated himself, and he showed himself more powerful than the prideful Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar witnessed what, what happened to Nebuchadnezzar. Here's what I think happened. He, he witnessed the amazing power of God. That's what he was impressed with. He was, he was impressed. He, he experienced conviction, but not conversion. Nebuchadnezzar admired the power of God. He didn't love and worship God. He did not submit to God. He loved things about God more than he loved God himself. I hope that's never true of us. Things, love the things of God or things about God, things from God's hand more than we love God himself. Nebuchadnezzar admired God, but his admiration didn't move him in, to any deeper love of God. And those three guys were thrown into that fire. And they knew God and loved him so much that even if it ate them up, they happily preferred that to happen than to be spared from that fire and worship the wrong thing. Any, any one of us can know God in this way and know that God is able and often willing to do the same things in our lives. That's what James says. Remember when in James, when James says, Elijah was a man with a nature just like ours. He put his tunic on one leg at a time just like ours. We did. Well, he prayed and it didn't rain for three and a half years. Nature just like ours. God hasn't changed. God has not changed. You know, and I, and, and, and God delivered them from the fire, from the fire. Well, I, I, I called this through the fire. He didn't deliver them from the fire. He del delivered them through it, totally safe and sound. But for every Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, there's a thousand others that get mauled and eaten. And get burned. But God is not one way toward Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And another way to the others. In both cases, God is being faithful. In exactly the same way that Shadrach, and Shadrach Meshach, and Abednego said that he could be. He can deliver us from the fire. But if not, but if not, God's the same. And we can trust him. Let's pray.
Father, thank you so much for uh, this word. Thank you for this story. I, Father, again, I, I, um, I read this story and I'm, my thoughts go in a thousand places because I, I see the tremendous example put before us in Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And uh, you know, when I read a, when I read any passage, I want to ask three questions. One, what does it teach me about God? And this passage teaches us so much about you. What does it teach me about myself? And that's where I, I get all kinds of caught up. Because when I said, what does it teach me about myself? I see myself in Nebuchadnezzar. And I see myself in probably the nameless multitude of Jews who bowed down to that image. I don't automatically, though I want to do, I, I know that in my heart of hearts, apart from your grace, I'm not Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I'm not Daniel. But as I get to the third question after what does it teach me myself, so what should I do? I should strive after the example of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I should strive after the example of Daniel. Ultimately, strive after the example of Jesus. Knowing, though, that thankfully, my relationship with you does not depend on that. My relationship with you is, is safe and secure and sound and as healthy as it ever will be in Jesus Christ. He is our righteousness. And yet, it is our desire to follow hard after you, after the examples we see in Scripture. That's one of the reasons they're given to us. I pray that as we have a, a couple of minutes around our tables to talk about this, I pray that you would um, equip us for real life here and now through this story that we've read in Daniel 3. pray in Jesus' name.